There's some work that already been done by some outsourced engineers. And the, the problem we ran into is they'd kind of gone down a path with a certain set of technologies that we quickly realized we're not going to be able to scale where we thought the business was going to end up going, which, you know, if you look over the last almost four years, three and a half years I've been here, we've grown the business from a revenue perspective, like 10x. So we first had to kind of step back and say, okay, let's really be clear about what the problem is we're going to go solve going forward. That's kind of where we started was what are the right technologies that are going to help us? Let's assume we're 10, 20 times or 30 times the size we are. Where are we going to hit problems and where are we going to hit scaling issues? Hi, I'm Verrill Allen. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Clarivine. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lampart, and today how Burl Allen leads the charge in creating a platform to ensure and control your data integrity. All this and more on Code Story. Prior to his current venture, Verl Allen spent 12 years at Adobe. During that time, he was raising three kids as a single dad. So you can imagine that during that time, it took a large part of his focus. Outside of his profession and family, he loves to ride road bikes three to four hours a week, but in particular, long distance rides to the tune of 200 miles in a single day. He's also a runner, which he finds takes less time to get a good workout. During his time at Adobe, Verl noticed a problem emerging with his exposure to acquisitions. He saw that the acquisitions were merging at the process level, but were not merging down to the data level. When he found out about his current gig, the product was attempting to solve a specific use case of this problem, but was sort of falling over. This is Verl's creation story at Clarifying. What we're doing is we're really helping our customers, and we we have about 100 uh, large enterprise customers. Like if I gave you names, they're all the top brands in the world. And really what we're helping them do is there's a lot of complexity that's been entered into kind of the data collection and just kind of the data pipeline and the data management side of things as there's been a massive amount of fragmentation at the application layer. And companies are moving from kind of managing data in silos to managing it on an organizational-wide perspective. We're really helping companies kind of enable data integrity, which really strikes it kind of really around data quality, ensuring that they have, we look at it, the problem kind of differently than the world kind of has looked at it for a long time, which is historically the problem has been solved in on the data side with data quality around ETL. So addressing the problem after the fact and trying to clean data up after the fact, we take a different approach, which is very proactive rather than reactive to data, data quality or data integrity and really help them set a standard around the data up front and then be able to manage that and enforce that across the enterprise. And that's that to us is really kind of what we feel is a much better way to, to do this. And we typically sell into marketing organizations in large organizations, in, in these large companies that are really kind of dealing with the complexity around delivering customer experiences digitally across these enterprises. If I understand right, you, you joined the company after it had been around for a while and, and you came in and revolutionized the things. So tell me about, you know, that first sort of project you took on. Where where was the company? Where was the product? And, you know, how long did it take you to turn it around? 
So I, I spent, prior to coming here, I spent 12 years at Adobe running their kind of M&A practice on the experience side of that business. So Adobe's built like a, almost a $4 billion business outside of the creative side on the marketing side and the, and the experience side. And all those, that business was built all around acquisitions that they did over, you know, we did over like a 12, 14 year period. While I was there, I saw this problem emerging where as technology was being even acquired and we were integrating, we were integrating at the, on the workflow level, but not down kind of the data level. And I saw that from a customer perspective time and time again, which is really what kind of attracted me here. And so somebody that had worked for me in the past had started Clarivine and kind of hit a point where they weren't sure what to do with the business. They had somebody that wanted to acquire it. It wasn't, there was, it was quite small at the time. It had four people, had a few, you know, had some customers, but they weren't sure where to take the product that the product was sort of falling over. You know, I took a look at it and because he, he needs, he's like, I don't know what to do with this thing. We really need to raise some capital. I think there's a bigger opportunity. As we looked, as I looked at it, I just felt like, listen, there's there's a bigger problem here to solve, which is a much more of an enterprise problem. They, they were solving a specific use case at the time. The first thing I, I realized was it's one of those situations where you come in and all of a sudden realize the situation here is much more kind of dire and much more of a reset than I kind of had anticipated. And so when I came in, they were just starting to kind of rebuild the product because the product had been built by a number of different had starts and stops on it by a number of different outsourced kind of engineers and product people. And it was, it was, it was kind of a mess and, and kind of falling over. And I, I immediately came in and had a number, you know, a few customers were like, we just can't use this anymore. It's breaking all over the place. The first thing I recognized is you, I, we have to hire some engineers. We have to actually own the product. If we're going to scale this thing, we can't rely on you know, third parties to, to manage this. That created a particular problem, you know, challenge for me because I'm not an engineer by training. I'm a finance. I have a finance background, and and um, kind of had been leading strategy in M and A, like I mentioned at Adobe. And so, that first hire I felt like on the engineering side was critical. And so, I kind of had to take a different approach to hiring that person. I, I actually worked with a company that I know really well here locally that had much much bigger. You know, they just went public here in the last year. And I went to the engineering team over there and said, "Listen, you guys are hiring people and looking to hire a bunch of engineers. I'm looking for some very specific folks, but there's overlap." And so I actually had some friends of mine that were leaders on that team. As they were interviewing, I would send over candidates to them uh, that I was looking at to interview. And I I kind of made the decision that if someone's going to self-select to come to a four-person organization versus a 400 or 500-person organization, it's, it's a very different opportunity. And so I want to find good people and let them self-select where they want to end up. And so fortunately, as I worked with them, I passed them a few people, they passed me a few people, and we ultimately kind of ended up with good outcomes on both sides. And I got some really good people out of that first. Two, two really talented engineers up front that really kind of paved the way for us to kind of transform the business from where we were at. So, so with that, that you, you hire the engineers and then you're going to go in and you're going to uh, revamp the product, start revamping the product. What sort of decisions and trade-offs did you have to make in the short term on that, on that product about you know, what was the, the, the most important thing to fix first? Yeah, it's interesting because it, it sort of became an exercise of evaluating kind of because because there's some work that already been done by some outsourced engineers and the, the problem we ran into is they'd kind of gone down a path with a certain um, set of technologies that we quickly realized we're not going to be able to scale where we thought the business was going to be was going to end up going which you know if you look over the last you know almost four years three and a half years I've been here we've grown the business from a you know from a revenue perspective like 10x where we were at and so we saw that 
what they had selected was going to be a problem. So we first had to kind of step back and say, okay, let's, let's, let's really be clear about what the problem is we're going to go solve going forward and what the right decisions are that are going to have to be made more from an architectural and technology kind of uh, selection uh, perspective. That's kind of where we started was what are the right technologies that are going to help us? Let's assume we're 10, 20 times or 30 times the size we are. Where are we going to hit uh, hit problems and where are we going to hit um, scaling issues and make sure that we make the right those right decisions? And so we sort of had to do this kind of bifurcated approach where we had to shore up the existing system that was falling over and ensure that we kind of keep the customers there and then also start down a path of developing a new platform and a new product completely from scratch and had to really throw away a lot of the work that had already been done on the new product and and really kind of hit the reset button but it was it was not completely throwing it all away because there were pieces that had been done that we kind of decided listen there's enough work that's been done here rather than throwing it away we're gonna we know we're gonna have to rewrite that at some point but let's let's take what's done let's use it and then let's let's build these other pieces that are scalable and try and make sure that we can integrate this stuff together and so that's kind of what we had to we kind of had to make that decision of like we know we're gonna have to rebuild this again but let's let's take the pieces that we know are are going to be less prone to breaking because of scale that have already been built let's take those forward and then let's build around that stuff that can scale and then come back and address it later and that's really kind of i think in some ways Again, back to those first hires, one of the folks I hired was, he's, he's now our chief architect and having him involved at the very beginning and understanding where we were going and having him here today has been super, super beneficial for us because he's seen, he's had a vision all the way through this that's kind of stayed consistent and allowed us to continue to scale the business. Well then, so how did you go about building your roadmap and and deciding, okay, this is how we're going to progress the product. This is the next most important thing to address or to rewrite. And how did you go about making those decisions? Some of it was a little bit of, you know, necessity of, you know, we were hitting, we were hitting limitations as, as the business started to scale. And as our customers were, as we released product that allowed them to use the as we released features, I'll say, that allowed them to scale up how they were using our product, what what we found was we were sort of introducing scale issues ourselves by release, you know, as we released more more functions and features that were that allowed them to scale, they would use them, it would scale the product usage up, we'd hit walls with that stuff. And so that so so it became pretty apparent quickly where we were going to hit limits on the product. And so that became a, that's one area that we, we were able to focus on and continue to kind of build out. The other thing that happened was, you know, I, I immediately, um, as I, I got in here, there was a guy that I'd worked with um, at Adobe, a company I'd acquired back, you know, five, six years before I joined here, who had spent a number of years at Adobe. Then he went to Bitly and he was at Oracle. And he had been really, really focused on kind of first-party data problems around analytics and, and, and within large enterprises. And, you know, the minute I got here, within about a month or two when I got here, he and I started talking on the phone. And um, it took about six months for me to get him to come over. But really, I'd already kind of put in place working with the team here that we had in place here at the time and working with customers to really come up with like what the next two or three iterations, you know, let's call it the next year need to look like. But once I brought this person over on the product side, 
who had a, he and I had spent a lot of time talking about vision of where we thought the product could go. And just by chance, he'd been introduced to the company before I even joined in a conference somewhere. He talked to talk to the founder, uh, the original founder of the company. Um, and he already sort of knew what they were doing and had already thought a little bit about what they, what they were solving and what the, what the adjacencies were that, that we could go after. And so by the time he joined, he and I already had a number of conversations. He talked to some of our customers and really having him come in and take a much deeper dive on, on the product and the roadmap really provided us a, a big kind of acceleration on where we were going to go. The other thing that's, that has happened though is we've, we've had situations where, and I'll, and I'll give an example where we had a webinar where we were presenting the product and we we're talking through the problem we we're helping solve our customers solve. And somebody had joined just randomly had got an email from us had joined the call and they were, they were consulting with um, a, a very, very large brand in the in te- a technology brand. And he called us literally after that. He re- somehow f- found my number or I think he actually, I take it back. He, think he, linked, he reached out to me on LinkedIn and he said, listen, I think your product will solve a problem for this company that has brought me in to help them solve it. A, a re- it's a problem that's sort of related to what you guys are solving, but it's in a totally different area of the business. Um, and so he and I got on a call and, and talked through what he was trying to help them solve and, and got the product team involved in that call. And it was interesting because it's now, it added on a whole new set of kind of a no, whole new use case, a whole new kind of value prop for our product in a completely different buying center in, in the enterprise. And so we now have multiple customers are paying us for solving this other problem that's that our technology will solve as well. And so we're seeing more of that where our customers are kind of pulling us into opportunities that we we never even really kind of anticipated that are as, as use cases that we would be solving. And I think that's one of the benefits of the customers we work with. There's so much scale there with those customers that um, they tend to pull us in places into other other parts of the org- of the enterprise that we just don't we don't even know the people there. We don't really understand what their problems are, but they pull us in when somebody on their team may be talking to somebody else or the data that they're generating from our solution may end up being used in other parts of the organization. And they start asking questions and we start getting pulled into conversations. So that's, that's kind of a, for us, has been a real big benefit for how we think about roadmap is getting pulled into other parts of the organizations by our customers. Well, let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? If I, if I remember right, there was only a handful of people there when you joined. So how did you go about that process? And you know, what did you look for in those people that indicated that they were the winning horses to join you? You know, for me, it starts out, you, got, you have to have a solid foundation. And I've been really fortunate in my career to intersect with a number of really, really talented people. And I, when I, like when I, I mentioned when I was looking for somebody for product, I called a couple of, of friends of mine who I really thought highly of and said, Hey, if, 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 if you had to hire, you know, your first product leader, who would that be? And it was funny. I told two different people that, that didn't know each other, but I knew both of them in, in kind of independent of each other. And they, they both gave me, one gave me three names, one gave me two. One of the names on both the lists was ultimately a person that, that we hired. They both were recommending this same person. It was, it was somebody that I had at the top of my list too. It was really interesting to see how we, we aligned, but that the reason I tell that story is hiring that person has kind of set the the table for he he's so good that the other people that have worked with him in the past there's people that he's intersected with in his career that he's built great relationships with 
that have we've been able to bring over as well. And so part of this, I believe, is it starts with, and I tell people this all the time, like in their careers, you know, I'm, I'm on kind of the, the, the last latter part of my career. You know, I've been doing this for 20, you know, 20 plus years in kind of tech, 23, 24 years now. And one thing I always tell people is value people for the people and not do not treat relationships as transactional because I think there's a, I see this happen a lot of times with people that that kind of treat relationships as transactional and what that does is it really kind of limits your ability to have long-term relationships with people even if you don't stay in contact with them every week they still you're still able to go back to them at a later point and use them as a reference or use them as a source of of you know a referral or you know whatever for for people you're looking for but one of the things I found with our team is that at the core of it, it's a group of people that have kind of been through either had success at in a larger enterprise or at a startup and or at both. And and typically the way we've hired is it's it's either people that we know and not like close friends, but people that we know that we've worked with that we thought highly of and we've had good relationships with or they're it's people we know who know somebody else. So it's like kind of, we've had a lot of success with kind of one degree separation and it's awesome when they come as a referral from somebody that you think highly of, because it typically is, is about as good as you can get. And I, I, we just hired somebody to, to our first kind of uh, people leader to run, you know, HR and, and people and culture. And she came from a referral from somebody that I'd known for seven years and I'd worked with off and on. And, and I really trust this person and she's she's acted as like a executive coach for me in the past when I was at Adobe, and she's she stayed a fr- as a friend. And you know, we were talking one day. I said, "This is what I'm looking for," and she's like, "Oh my gosh, I know. I, there's two people I know that would be awesome for this role, and this one in particular." And we end up we end up getting, hiring her, and it worked out well because not only was she a referral from this person, but she could she was a referral for us to this person and a referral for that person to us. And so it was kind of a you know a, a mutual connection that that happened, and and it's turned out to be an awesome. Um, higher for us. And I think we've, we found that kind of across the board. The other thing that I would say, and I tell this people all the time, is we look for people that run towards the fire. Like if there's a fire, I have a team of people that don't walk the other way or run the other way. They run towards the fire and they are problem solvers and they, are, they, they literally wake up each day enthusiastic about solving hard things and hard, hard problems. They don't look at customer problems or customer issues as, you know, pain in the butt or whatever. They look at it as an opportunity and really as a chance to solve a, a, an interesting problem. And I think that to me at the core of it is really what defines, I think, our team in a lot of ways. Let's flip to scalability then. So tell me how you approached scaling the system. And, and you mentioned kind of early days, you, you were focusing on that uh, out of the gate of the a correction in the platform. Tell me about how you approach that. We we really felt like, listen, if we're going to go do this thing, we want to build something big. And we felt like the opportunity we had in front of us was was fairly large. And again, it's tough when you're when you're really because we're really kind of building a new category. We're we're solving a problem in a totally different way, and so you don't ever really know, you know. Is, is this going to catch hold? Are people going to, you know, are people really going to buy into this? Is, are we going to be able to deliver the value we say we're going to be able to deliver? But I just really felt strongly, like, if we're going to go do this, the only reason I want to do this, if we can build something that's really meaningful, that's going to really change the way that 
work gets done or a problem gets solved. And that ultimately, when, when I saw the scale of the problem, I felt like this was something that you know, is a, is a multi-billion dollar problem to go solve. And if, if that's kind of the way you go into thinking about the problem, it changes the way that you think about architecting the solution for the problem because you're going to be, you know, you're going to be solving it at a, at a scale that is hundreds or thousands of times larger than what you're kind of currently operating at. And it becomes a challenge when you think about it because it's there's a cost to kind of future-proofing everything, right? And it, there's a huge cost to that. And so we've made we've had to make conscious trade-offs at each step of the way. And, and part of this comes back to we do a quarter we do quarterly planning um, on the product side, and we make some really tough trade-offs each quarter. And there are some situations where we realize what we're doing right now is going to result in tech debt. But we try to, and, and we're going to have to go back and readdress this again later. But part of that is we're making some trade-offs in the sense that we're trying to really get um, specific about how far out that, you know, if we're putting a fix in place, how far out we're going to have to come back and address what we know is going to be tech debt. And sometimes we're making specific trade-offs, say we're going, we know this is going to result in some tech debt, but we know that that's 18 months off and we will we will be in a position to pay the price at that point because the, the, the trade-off in, you know, versus future-proofing is is great enough that we're willing to make that trade-off. And so we've, we've had to make that, we've had to make those decisions a number of times. And it's, it's, some of this comes down to, you know, a long debate on some of this stuff between the team, across the team, on, on, on how we make these trade-offs. But we're very clear on what, what the trade-offs are and, and why we're making them each time. I think those are interesting conversations to be a part of, right? They're, they're typically maybe a little tense, maybe not, um, but they are, are team-building uh, <laughs> in nature. They, they really are. And, and I think, you know, that's one of the things that we really kind of, I, I, I say this all the time, like a health of the health of an organization to me is the inverse of the kind of the, the, the length of that loop to get to an answer. Like if that feedback loop or that answer loop is long, the, you know, you've got, you've got issues with, you know, kind of health of your, your organization. And so the more you can make those conversations really direct and sometimes they get animated. And, it, and to me, the animation that and the kind of when they become a little bit um, passionate and people compassionate about this stuff to me that's that is an indication of people's level of engagement on on the problem that we're trying to solve and their engagement in the business and I love it and I think you know we've you know we've got a team of people that love to debate that stuff and really feel strongly about about things and it's not a personal it's not a personal win or lose thing it's really we're trying to we're all we're all ultimately trying to get to the same end state and the best the best answers here and sometimes that means you know along that process i learned something from somebody else that really kind of changes my mind on something and there's also this notion of like you know um you know not necessarily compromise or alignment but it's you know on a scale of one to five we kind of talk about how how bought in are you on this decision anything above a one which is i just can't support it is to me the chance to move forward if even if it's i support it but i reserve the right to come back later with if i have more information to readdress the the decision and to reevaluate it that to me is that's good enough to move forward and and leave that open for people and that's that's sometimes where where these things end 
Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've you've built, corrected, uh, improved at Clarivine, what are you most proud of? You know, for me, it's two things, really. It, it comes down to the customers we have. You know, we, we run our business in a way that, you know, we, 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 made, we, we were able to achieve 96% um, revenue retention last year, which is top decile across all kind of B2B SaaS. And we did that in a situation where I tell our team all the time, you know, we're a 40-person 40, 40 team and the customers we sell into, the peer set of the software vendors they're using are Adobe, Oracle, Salesforce, Microsoft, um, Google, and that is our peer set. And so we're playing in a pretty stratified kind of area in, in software. And so the fact that we have been able to support these customers that have, you know, I, I, it's funny, I, one, of our, one of my first, probably first three months I was here, I had a meeting up in um, with a large athletic shoe manufacturer up in Oregon. And I remember they pulled us in a room and they, they pulled it, as we got there, we were talking for a few minutes and they said, hey, we just want to talk to you about kind of level set expectations. And, and they basically said, listen, here's the deal. We don't have any startup tech in our whole stack. You guys are the only vendor in there that's a startup, like less than a thousand employees. And so just to be totally clear with you guys, if you screw this up, we have to like rip you out immediately. We, we cannot, we just, we just can't, we can't be patient on this stuff. And I just kind of looked at him and I'm like, that totally makes sense to me. Like, I get it. And so that's kind of when I came back from that meeting, I remember talking to the team. I'm like, this is the expectation of what, how our customers see us. Like they see us and they, we have to, we have to deliver in a very similar way and meet the expectations as some of these software companies that have 10, 50, 100, 200,000 employees. And that's, that's the bar that we have to play against. As much as I'm proud of the, our ability to deliver against that, the customers and the customers we have, it's the team that delivers against that each and every day. That to me is the, you know, 80 plus percent of the cost of running this business is people. And I tell people all the time, we're not in the software business. We are in the people business. And that's because, you know, it's people here and it's as much as it's customers and brands, it's people that we work with on the other side. So we really are in the people business. And so it's the people both internally our people and the people that we work with every day on our customers that I just am so proud of the relationships we have and the ability of our team to deliver against what I think are really high expectations for a company that has 40 people and we do it every single day. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. One of the things that I that I think were, there's been a couple points where we've had situations with, and again, I, I feel like we have a very drama-free kind of, I, I pride ourselves on kind of a drama-free work environment, a drama-free board. We just don't have any of it. But there's been a couple situations where we've hired people that were just not the right cultural fit. And I'm thinking of a recent instance, and I, and I was the one that recommended the hire. And, you know, after about two or three months, it became I, I saw that it wasn't the right fit. And so I went to my team and said, hey, I want to get feedback from everybody here. Like, you know, I recommended this person. They're in a pretty senior role. It's not working. I don't feel. I want to, and I want to hear from you guys what your thoughts are. And the feedback kind of came back. It's not working. And so, and this is someone I'd known for, and I'd worked with for four or five years prior. Then he and I had not worked together for a number of years. And then we worked together again. And 
I remember having to have that, you know, it's that moment where you're like, I have to go have this conversation. I have to make this change. And, um, you know, it was, it was a situation where I waited a couple of weeks, just kind of like dreading that conversation. And finally, I remember one morning I woke up and I'm like, I have to have this conversation today. So I called him and, you know, we came to the office in the middle of the pandemic. It's like getting people to come to the office is not that easy. Right. And so, you know, we had to sit down and have the conversation and it was brutal. Like it was a, it was not an easy conversation to have for him or for me. And, but ultimately it was such the right decision for us as a company. It immediately within a week, you know, it just, it felt like kind of I, I, almost like a release valve. Like I, I could just sense the kind of the change in the mood of, for folks. And I, and I had to take ownership of the, you know, it was my, my call to make the hire and it, it wasn't the right hire. Let's switch to you, Verl. Uh, who influences the way that you work? I'm a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person you look up to and why? There's a couple of people I, I look back on my career. I'm actually thinking of three people as you, as you ask that question. There's three people that come to mind immediately. And they're, they're, people will not know who these folks are. But, you know, I, I started at a company called Ancestry.com in, in 99. And it was, a, it was a, at the time, it was, you know, there were a couple hundred people there. We were, the company was going down a totally different path on a different business model. And then in 2000, I think 2001, we flipped the switch and went to a subscription business on, around family history at Ancestry.com. And I was fortunate there early on, one of the individuals that was on our board ended up coming and operating within the company, so working at the company. And he's now one of my investors here at this company. So he, I worked with him for about three and a half years at Ancestry, and then we reconnected and worked again for about a year and a half at um, what was Omniture and then was acquired by Adobe. And he is someone that really has changed the way I think the way I view the world from a, you know, he's helped me see the world much bigger. He's a, he, you know, he's a Harvard business school grad. He's really, really bright, but he sees, he's very quick to kind of see where things are broken. You know, he, he can pick things apart very quickly. And as I've, if I spent more and more time with him and I had that opportunity twice to work for him, it really helped me kind of step up my game as far as what, I was able to deliver or what I needed to deliver in situations to be, you know, to, to, to against, um, objectives that he had. And I found that, you know, just by working with him for that period of time where I worked with him in two situations, instances, it was super valuable for me. Now having him as an investor sitting on the other side has been so incredibly, we have such a great working relationship, but he continues to be someone that pushes me and someone I really respect. And, and his feedback is never, at, at times, it's very cutting and very direct, but it has always been such. I, I've known it for so long that I can. It, it always comes with love and with like a belief that I can do some really hard things. That he has expectations that are high that he believes I can achieve, and, and that helps me become better. Um, and then I, I spent, you know, when I was at Adobe, I, I worked for two indi- with two individuals that are off now at another startup and doing amazing things there. They're, you know, much, they're way, way ahead of where we're at. It, it's, you know, a couple hundred million dollar AR company. And they are two people, one of which helped me at a point where I was thinking about leaving early at, at, Adobe, at, at Adobe after I kind of was acquired, our business was acquired, Omniture was acquired by Adobe. And I was thinking about leaving afterwards. And he was one that got me to stick around. It was the best decision I kind of made because I, it really helped me mature and see how to operate within a large company and how to kind of, 
how decision making, different ways of of decision making and, and really matured my skills. And so him as a mentor all through that process, and there were times, you know, he led the business unit and there were times where he just needed, and I saw from his vantage point how lonely it can be being a CEO or being a leader. And, and, you know, he and I would ride bikes together and those, those bike rides were really kind of cathartic for him, but it was also opportunities for me to really see how he thought about problem solving and how he thought about, um, scaling the business and things. And so it really provided me a really interesting perspective into how to build a business effectively and, and successfully. And I'd say the last one is, you know, I got married about almost three years ago and my wife has been, she, she is a you know, she was an educator for about 17 years. She left that completely and has now worked in two st- in a startup that has recently gone public. She was there early and all the way through them going public. And she is, um, you know, she works in HR. She's very been very successful there, but she also does executive coaching. And so I'm kind of like, you know, um, patient number one in some ways for her. And so the feedback she provides, I'll be honest, like, you know, she's just, she is great in that regard of like, she's always willing to listen. We talk a lot. I mean, she is intimately involved with what I'm doing here because we talk so much about it. But the thing I love is she's always willing to just listen and ask. The first question she always asks is, are you open to feedback on that? And it's always interesting because usually the feedback starts with a number of questions kind of getting deeper on, on what's going on. And, you know, I'm a very kind of, um, analytical, I I can tend to think with my head a lot and she's much more about thinking with your heart. And so it really helps me kind of temper sometimes my decisions in a way that, and soften my approach to certain things that I would not be naturally inclined to do. And it's really kind of helped me become a much more, I think empathetic and much more understanding um, in a lot of situations where I probably wasn't nearly as much so in the past. And I think it's made me just a better person and a better leader and a better father and, you know, in, in just other facets of my life. So I, I, I give her a lot of, of um, um, credit for kind of helping, you know, when things have been tough at times, she's been there every single time as just a huge support. Well, last question, Burl. So you're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it, and they can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit? First, my first question is like, are you sure you want to do this? Um, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's not easy. Like, it's, we're kind of at a point now where I feel like, we, you know, it's, it's a little bit like putting a rocket into space. It's that you got to burn a bunch of fuel to get off the launch pad and, you know, get kind of terminal velocity on these things. And, um, I was just talking to somebody recently that's kind of, you know, getting ready to raise around funding. And we were going through this, talking about a number of different things on his business. And the thing that really impressed me though, was how much passion he had. So my question immediately with people, as I think about it is I always look for how much passion they have about what they're working on and what they're trying to solve. If it's something you're really passionate about, go for it. Because I found in my career, I've made a number of, I've had, I've, I've been really fortunate. I've spent time on the sales side and seen how that works. And I did it just because I wanted to understand how enterprise software sales work. So I spent a year doing that, even though I'd never sold before. And I sold in the enterprise. It was actually a great experience. 
you know, I've, I've been in finance, I've been in strategy, I've been in M&A, I've been on, on the operation side, um, biz dev, I've been kind of across different areas. But what I found in my career is, and I, me- I remember one situation where I switched roles into more kind of M&A and into strategy. And I remember talking to the CEO at the time, we were sitting in his office and he's like, okay, and this, I was in sales. I had come to the company to do enterprise sales. I spent a year doing that. But after a year, I was kind of like, I've already learned. I felt like I've kind of figured out what I wanted to learn here. And I'm ready to do something different. And I remember him just going, wait a second. You want to take a 50% pay cut and double your hours. And he looked at me. He's like, are you stupid? Like, why would you do that? And I was just like, it's, it's because it's something I want to learn and I'm passionate about. And I think that's where I, I looked at people. I'm like, I always ask the question, like, how passionate are you about solving this problem and why does it matter? And if people have good answers for that, my, my point to them is to go for it and, and really make sure if you're going to go for it, make sure you have a support system in place around you because there are going to be times where you want to quit. You don't, you're going to feel inadequate. You're going to feel like, you know, there's not a way out of this thing or, you know, the, the problem's gotten too hard or whatever, and having a support, making sure you have a support system around you when those things get hard ensures that you don't give up. That's great advice. Well, Verl, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling your creation story uh, with Clarifying. Nah, my pleasure, Noah. Thanks a lot for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just 5 to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save